0: And we're back with episode two, part two of our intestinal rehabilitation series. We ran out of time with the first part, so we're going to give you the rest of this amazing conversation on overwhelming abdominal intestinal catastrophe with Dr. Paul Wales and Dr. Michael Helmrath from the Cincinnati Children's intestinal rehabilitation program. I'm Rod Gerardo. This is Ellen and Cisco. We're research residents at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Stick around. This is the State Current Pediatric Surgery Podcast. So we left off last episode talking about the general concept that Dr. Helmrath and Dr. Wales want to impart on you, the listener, is that sometimes maybe we just need to let the baby tell us when it's time to operate. Instead of going by our own metrics or whatever experience we have had when it comes to treating a patient with overwhelming intestinal catastrophe. And they define that as really severe necrotizing enterocolitis or, or volvulus or really anything that leads to an incredibly significant amount of intestinal
1: loss the goalposts have moved over the last two decades i mean so if if you take babies with the more conventional approach let's say you know babies that have what we you know would call ultra short gut what is the definition of an ultra short gut like in toronto we we classified that as less than 20 percent of expected for age so in a term baby you're looking at you know 20 20 to 30 centimeters anything less than that 20, 25 would be what well, we would, you know, would be an ultra shortcut kid. But even if, so if we look at that population and sort of, the current era of management, the overall survival in that group was is over 90%.
2: It's actually 90 to 95%. They don't die of liver failure anymore. They rarely get transplanted.
1: They were able to continue to grow within normal parameters. The ones that reached autonomy required multiple nutritional supplements. There should be more optimism in general with this population just because our ability to mitigate those long-term you know, risks of death from liver disease or sepsis have been transformed in the current era of management. Any maneuver that we can do that can preserve as much bowel as possible to shift this baby into a different risk category, above or less than 50% expected gut length, for instance, would be helpful because the ones that did better with ultra short gut, in our experience, they had some remnant ileum as part of their residual bowel, and they tended to also be the ones that had a a longer colonic remnant.
0: So those are the ones that tended to adapt and get off of TPN.
3: And that's because the ileum has a lot of functions that the rest of the bowel doesn't. Not only does it reclaim bile and tell the liver what to do, but it produces um, hormones like gop 2 that we know about, but PYY and others that slow motility and tell the jejunum to reabsorb some of that fluid that is, is the major problem of fluid losses that we see in these kids. The colon, actually maybe account for a third to half of the caloric needs of some of these babies when exposed to undigested nutrients. These kids largely are neurologically fine. They're running and playing. And big. the thought that you would be salvaging a baby to have a lifelong care need and their, their life expectancy would not be associated with things that most parents would want for their children is not what we see in the clinic. So we really do have an opportunity to affect lives and offer hope to families and these children that have overwhelming catastrophes early on in life. And again, I think the take home message of this is the child should be the one driving the care, not your expectations or the lack thereof. And without changing that early paradigm, nothing else can get better in this population. It may be a provocative question for
0: those who are more in the know with intestinal rehabilitation, but you know, in the past with necrotizing enterocolitis, the feeling was, you know, you have to intervene as quickly as possible surgery because there's an inflammatory response and that can potentially affect neurocognitive outcomes. Here's what Dr. Helmrath thought about that.
3: Well, I mean, obviously bowel removed is bowel never to be used. The the fear that it's driving a neurocognitive thing, I think needs to be supported with data. I do think that, you know, we do have new tools and kits, but it's not accessible until these kids get a little bit older. And that's one of the things that have to be accompanied by these programs is we have to continue to ask questions like that. The net kids do remarkably well. And I I would argue most neck kids don't have overwhelming totalis. Neck totalis in neck kids is fairly rare, but we have a dozen or more of these kids that had neck totalis that are off TPN, not only survived, but have done remarkably. And certainly the the comparative group to that patient is in a cemetery. As, as rude as that sounds, um, a dead child has no neurological function.
0: You know, the question is how do you get to those kinds of outcomes where the patient is post-op running up to you in the hallway and giving you a hug. And it's it's a really big team approach, not an algorithm.
3: Once they live, the opportunities for us to move forward in this field and rehabilitate the bowel. The new tools that we will make in the next decade are gonna be profound. But the opportunity given to that child is made at the time that you open the belly and you see catastrophe. So you remove all the potential that we have in the future based on your clinical acumen that this is gonna have a bad outcome and that it's time to withdraw. And the first team that has to conv- be convinced is your neonatologist, because they're the ones
1: at the bedside who historically removed the breathing tubes on these kids and allowed them to pass. And I think, to be fair to them, I mean, they they do see some of these, the ones that survive, you know, historically, they, they would see these x prems and some of them had intestinal failure that would come back to their follow-up clinic. I don't subscribe to the notion that every kid needs to die with a laparotomy indecision. Like, I don't necessarily believe that. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, it's the data that will tell us if, if, that, if that idea about the uh, unoperated kid septic response, inflammatory response, is going to have a negative outcome. In Dr.
0: Wells' experience at other institutions, he has found that long term neurocognitive tracking can be beneficial to the patients.
1: You know, part of our responsibility as a program is to put these kinds of things in place so this population is followed long term so that we get this data to be able to answer it.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. If you see protein growth and linear growth of your baby and head growth, that's brain growth. And a baby will not grow well with a, with an unhealthy liver and is not managed well. Unhealthy liver is a, is not providing the protein for the neurocognitive development period. And that's why it's the number one priority early uh, that you should have um, in managing this.
0: Make sure that you have a dietician on your team. Make sure that your neonatologists are attentive to these nutritional demands as
1: well. You know, when we talk about providing adequate nutrition, especially at this stage, so that this baby is anabolic and has the best neurocognitive outcome possible, you know, that feeds into the whole management strategy you know, which is commonly done in many places, that of, you know, lipid restriction as a way of controlling that liver. And, you know, that was never really a practice that we subscribed to. Babies, especially
3: premature babies, the first year of life, they have the caloric means 80, 100, 120 per kilo because they're growing and developing. When you're critically ill, you no longer are growing and developing. You can feed these babies 150 kcals per kilo. They will not grow because their livers are catabolic.
2: So let's say we have a 30, 30- weak baby with necrotizing enterocolitis, fairly extensive necrosis involving the vast majority of the bowel. There's a long segment that looks dead. There's some patronecrotic areas farther down into the ileum or cecum, tens from the jejunum, from the ligament of trites It looks viable, and everything else is dead or sick. And so what would we do here?
3: So I know this baby is going to need multiple operations. So the incision is a transverse incision because I know over time that's the one that's going to give me the least problems. And when I get into the abdomen and and I see this situation, what I'll do is I'll, I'll find a segment of bowel just beyond what I think is gonna heal, maybe, you know, a centimeter or two. And I'll bring in an eight or 10 French Blake drain, um, often if it's normally rotated, be from the left lower quadrant. Um, and I will put that through bowel, which I would generally feel is not gonna do well. And then I would place that uh, retrograde up to the point of the pylorus. And then I would make a tie around uh, with a vicle loosely around the most healthy part of the bowel and that kind of controls around the drain any of the secretions and then at the site that I put it in which will be a few centimeters around I'll kind of put a purse string and I'll tie that and then I'll take that stitch out from the hole and I'll secure that to the skin and so essentially that's sort of stamming it up to the abdominal wall and then I'll secure that on the outside that generally takes on the order of minutes. Many of the times at that point, I will be able to see the stomach and I'll put a little purse string in the stomach and I will put a five, six, seven French uh, feeding tube into the proximal bowel and tie that. Again, that takes me a minute or two. I use the same technique of that purse string and taking that PDSL. But oftentimes what it means is that you don't have to get back up in that left upper quadrant when uh, you need to get a G-tube later. And then I try to close the kids primarily, but. If I worry that there's a lot of that bowel and and whatnot, I will put a little alloderm in. If I'm really worried, Sometimes I'll put a drain in the abdomen just to allow stuff to drain out. I try to avoid doing significant dissection of the distal ileum once because I want to preserve the blood. So I want to let the collateralization happen to recover as much of that proximal bowel as possible.
1: So for the distal bowel that's being diverted, if it's, you know, because sometimes it's kind of baggy looking, it might be filled with uh, bloody enteric fluid, do you suck that out. Uh, or leave it in situ or what, what's your approach?
3: If there's distal perforations and the baby's fine, I, I will, if you feel like it's patching necrosis and there's areas that you worry about, I have no problem taking a, you know, a stitch distal to proximal and bringing the bowel together to healthy muscle just so that it's preserved and you'll go back later and, and manage that. I mean, it really depends on the extent of necrosis. And I will put a refeeding tube in the distal bowel so I can refeed and let that intermediate bowel just sort of hang out. It depends on how much proximal bowel and whether I feel like I could feed. So we have a baby now that um, has 40 centimeters of proximal bowel that we did that too. And that the refeeding is allowing me to wait longer for that intervening bowel to heal. And that baby's liver is fine. And so it's just buying me time. And the time is because the amount of fluid that comes out of injured bowel is very high.
2: So Dr. Helmrath also told us that when the bowel gets damaged, it weeps and secretes fluids. The volume of output is going to be high As it heals, it'll start to regenerate the ability to reabsorb that fluid. And so the output from the drain will go down and that'll be a sign that the bowel is healing.
3: And so your volumes will come down. Yeah,
0: because I think that initially an increase in volume would startle and concern most surgeons, but he's saying that this is kind of a normal process of the healing.
1: The surgeon's role in the patient with short bowel syndrome um, is, is obviously significant partly for what we do and partly for what we don't do mm-hmm. right those intraoperative decisions have a lifelong impact um, and and that's critically that's so important so those those decisions that you make at the time that you see an intradominal catastrophe can make the difference between whether this kid will get up stay on or get off tpn or whether they survive or don't
2: and again it's a uh team approach, we have to talk to the neonatologists and the other providers about this approach.
3: I mean, I've spent my life maybe doing that to a point. It, it's really hard. And I think these conversations need to be had with other providers in the room, not just your surgical colleagues, because the, the neonatologists, the dietitians, have to be on board. Families are are not able to make decisions. Once you explain to the family that the individual making the decisions moving forward is a baby and you explain that to them, when things go bad, it actually makes it easier. For,
2: them. for maybe the neonatologists who haven't worked closely with people like Dr. Helmrath or Dr. Wales and you know, you're taking care of a sick baby and you're feeling pessimistic about its outcomes. We asked Dr. Hilma and Dr. Wales what is the time course after surgery and following these patients and how long it might take to recover and when you might start to say that they're not recovering.
3: Yeah, what to expect. I think you'd be surprised at the number of kids who are sick. Taken to the OR but they're not as critically sick as we believe they're going to be. And the the point is is to sit down and look at the big picture. I mean, yeah, a the count of six and on pressors is a bad thing, and that if it persists then the baby's declaring this. What I'm stating is that many of those kids once you control the proximal bowel and you get everything
1: decompressed will actually slowly get better there's what's obviously dead and infarcted which would traditionally be removed then there's what's suspicious uh, or questionable and you and then you leave that and come back in 24 to 48 hours because you're trying to give the the benefit of the doubt, right? And let it demarcate. That's sort of the rationale, right? And what you're describing is departure from that sort of traditional teaching, right? And and so, which I think is really interesting. But I agree with you. Often some of these kids do get, they kind of look worse over that next 24, or 36 hours. And then they start to, you know, they may not even be getting better. They just stop getting worse.
3: Long term, if you take everything out, there are many of them that will heal and then we have no opportunity. That experiment's been done. So we're talking about, premature kid with overwhelming bowel loss in this conversation. So previously, Dr. Helmrath
0: talked about the Blake tube. What does he mean by that?
3: So I've used many different tubes. The Blake tube has linear cuts on the outside, so little they won't get obstructed in many situations when secretions and stuff get around them. And that's why I like them a lot. What's the downside of them is you can't change them over a wire like you can a JP. And other ones that just have side holes. They're soft, and so they don't tend to put a lot of pressure on damaged valves. They can be connected to a, a, you know, a bulb syringe, which works great. So they don't they're not perfect because I can't change them over a wire. You can cut them to size. It's what I use. It's not ideal. If I had the best scenario, it would be a Blake tube that has a central hole that I could pass a wire. Someday in my life, maybe a All All right. So there you have it. That is our
0: second episode of the intestinal rehabilitation podcast with Dr. Helmrath and Dr. Wells, where we talked about overwhelming intestinal catastrophe, whether it's secretizing enterocolitis or volvulus, whatever it is, and how to even approach these patients. We start off with talking to the family about goals of care. Preoperatively, you wanna make sure that the liver is optimized. Intraoperatively, the number that you wanna look for is 50%. That's kind of the cutoff for them to say, yes, this is salvageable, no, this is not salvageable. Even shorter than that, you could have a kid with ultra-short gut syndrome, which they define less than 20% of your intestine. But the surprising thing is that sometimes, even if you're looking at dead gut, you don't necessarily have to cut it out because these neonates have really impressive regenerative properties to their intestines.
2: Postoperatively, we still have to think about the liver and how it's doing. We have to think about the diet, talk to the nutritionist or the dietitian. We talked a little bit about some of these thoughts around neurocognitive. Effects of necrotizing enterocolitis. Overall, okay. I would say Dr. Helmrath and Dr. Wales have a lot of experience, and you know we're continuing to learn a lot from them.
0: The main thing I got from this podcast is that like you could have a patient with seemingly a really significant concerning abdominal catastrophe. And with the proper perioperative considerations and intraoperative decision-making, you know, they can come out of it and then grow up to be the kid that's running down the hall and giving you a hug on follow-up. If you like this episode and you want to hear more like this, let us know in the comments, follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel, download the Stay Current Pediatric Surgery app. But until then, I'm Rod. And I'm Ellen. And remember, knowledge should be Should free. Be free.